Hello! Welcome! Uh, if you've been already listening, welcome back to The Wages of Cinema. I'm Jack. We all knew you would be back. I knew you would be back. Andrew? Twist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is that a good way to start this off? Yeah. I mean, after I kind of fell asleep there, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty good, pretty good idea. Wait, you but, fell asleep? Not like the movie we're about to talk about. No. Uh, some of you may or may not know this. Probably most of you do. Who doesn't? But uh, ten years ago, this very night, July 21st, yes, M. Night Shyamalan released his latest film, Lady in the Water, which well, many considered the beginning of the end of M. Night Shyamalan. The first M. Night film, by the way, not released by Disney, uh, released by Warner Brothers. Yes, but we'll get into that later. Yes. But this is a film which has gone out in history as a pretty awful film. And we're here to talk about our experience, about... M. Night Shyamalan's experience in the book written uh, about the late lady of, making of Lady in the Water, The Man Who Heard Voices, right. by uh, author, what's his name again? Um, yeah, now, for those of you who listen regularly to our podcast, or even if you're new to it, what we do here sometimes, uh, we, we occasionally have a segment which uh, we start we start in the very first episode called Required Reading, uh, where I mention books, movie books, and Andrew occasionally has brought books as well, um, about the making of movies, about certain tropes in movies, uh, this or that. Um, and this is a combination episode, you could say, because it's a required reading episode because of the book called The Man Who Heard Voices, or How M. Night Shyamalan Risked His Career on a Fairy Tale by Michael Bamberger. And it's the second installment of what I call Dr. Jack and Dr. Andrew's Case Files. Yep. <laughs> which, which Where we dissect the rotting corpse of an old movie which, <laughs> we, which we died the it. death of a dog in the theaters. We, we unearth it as if like it's the mummy. And then the mummy attacks us with its bad moviness. And, and it strangles us with its bandages and we're, we find out what went wrong. We're, we're like the... We're, we're, See, we're we're crazy people. We're we're summoning. We open up the Book of the Dead, and we say <laughs> Cla- we say Claude Verona Nicto, and we have things like Myra Breckenridge and Lady in the Water attack us. I'm Cleveland Heap. Welcome to the Cove. Until we're dead by dawn. So yeah, we slay the movies uh, and we make our diagnosis. So we're going to talk about Lady in the Water, which is 10 years old tonight. And it's all, not quite 10 years since we first watched it. Like No, we saw we, it on DVD, I believe. Yes, we, uh, um, we... I know we talked about this briefly on another podcast. We, uh, we, used, we still do, but more regularly we had... Uh, weekly movie nights where we would get together and watch generally bad movies. Sometimes we watch good ones, but some, mostly it was an occasion to kind of get together and watch some notorious movie or some piece of crap. And and one of our first movie nights was Lady in the Water. Mixed with Wacko's Wish. Wacko's Wish was pretty good compared to Lady in the Water, I must say. <laughs> Which I want to get back to, Wac- to Wacko's Wish in a little bit. But sure. Lady in the Water, so I hadn't seen it since then. And when I saw it the first Same time... Same with me. And when I first saw it, it became, right away, one of my most hated films of all time. Mm. 
I, I went into like a Roger Ebert thing in my head. You know, I was like, I hate this movie. Hated, 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 hated every, hated every single moment of every single simpering thing. Every moment, anything that the filmmaker thought I would like. Anything that, you know, that kind of You tirade. have that whole speech memorized, don't you? Almost. Not quite. <laughs> Not down to like the word, but. What I remember most about the release of Lady in the Water was the review on uh, us was the spill review when back was when it was the real deal. You know what's funny? And I never list I never saw that one. I think that was That was a very early review. That was for like them. in their infancy when they first started their animated reviews. Yeah. And they they reviewed Lady in the Water. What and, did they think of it? Well, here's what I remember. The the most the, the line that stuck out for me, Corey Coleman was talking about the movie and about how they got to the end and he said, all right, this is M. Night Shyamalan movie. Well, something is going to happen at the end of this film to explain all this craziness that I've just seen. And then the credits came up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, th- <laughs> and, and that's how I felt after I watched the, the, the movie. Yeah. I felt like I had seen something that drained away part of my life. Yeah. And I immediately said, I have to go watch a real, real film or my film brain is going to starve to death. Yeah. Well... Unfortunately, that film was Unchan Andalu, and I felt much better after that. Well, as well you should. But I... So I decided, though, to give this another shot. Sure, why not? It's been dead ten years. Yeah, well, well, also because of the book. And I'd heard about the book for a while, and I just... I don't know, I never got around to it. Because I had heard... I had sort of gotten the impression that the author was very favorable to M. Night Shyamalan... And that just didn't interest me. Like, I thought that, oh, no, is this guy going to be kissing his ass? And, uh, you know, he has all this unfettered access, but how is he going to use it? Right. That was a, that was an interesting uh, but uh, an interesting thing to consider after, because yeah. the author, Michael Bamberger... He, he wasn't a movie guy. No, he was a guy... He was he, a sports writer. Yeah, who just met M. Night Shyamalan at a party and started to just follow him and say, you know, can I write something about you? Because you seem like a cool guy, which M Night Shyamalan does seem like a lot of times. Well, well, that's the that was back thing. at the time when M Night Shyamalan was on top of his game. He was. I mean, you have to remember, this is him in 2004 when this is when Michael Bamberger met him and started writing him. The Village had just come out, and the book goes into this. Even though The Village, you could maybe argue that was the real beginning of his downfall. Because there he, you know, even though the movie was a success, people started to point out. It wasn't the big out, success that people hoped it would be? No, it, it had like a big opening weekend and then it had a pretty quick drop off. Um, and it's, people started to notice certain tricks and things that like M. Night was kind of doing a lot. By the way, we should, do we call him M. Night or just Knight? Because the book makes it seem like his name is Knight. But I feel weird calling him Knight. It doesn't feel like a real name. I just call him Shyamalan. Yeah, Shyamalan sounds better. Um, so, but the point is, though, this author followed him around after that, and the book gave me a different take on him than I was expecting. It wasn't something that, I mean, there are parts of him that are unappealing. He, there, there are times where he seems pretty crazy. Yeah. There are times where he seems like a megalomaniac. Yeah, but then there are times when he's perfectly supportive. He's in this. charming. Yeah, he can be. He can get a group together and believe in his vision, which he, he, obviously that's what a filmmaker does. And and he can be a good leader. Yeah. When he's which you have to be when you're a director. Can yeah. I do something? Can I talk a little bit about what the plot of Lady in the Water is? <laughs> can you if you can? Try. Because there may be people who who aren't quite familiar with what we're please, talking about. Please, yes. Okay. Uh, Lady in the Water is a story that takes place in or around Philadelphia, in this sort of apartment complex, yes. where the superintendent is a man named Cleveland Heap, played by Paul Giamatti. Yes. One, and he takes care of this apartment, he talks to all the weird people there, uh, there are all sorts of strange characters, but you know they're all just kind of doing they're, things to they're, themselves. It's an ensemble. Quirky people. Well, and, but well not even so much quirky, maybe kind of charactery. Yeah. Uh, but then one day he finds this woman in the apartment swimming pool, and she tur- and she turns out to be this sort of water nymph or a narf. I'll get to that later. Uh, oh, yeah. She's played by Bryce Dallas Howard, and her name in the movie is Story. Yes. Okay. And the rest of the movie is Paul Giamatti and the people of this apartment complex trying to help Story get home. 
Yes. That is the basic, most basic way I can explain Lady in the Water Team. Yeah. Now, another way to explain it is, uh, now this is going past that. You gave a pretty good plot synopsis as far as, as much as you could. Um, (laughs) What is often, what was often cited is that Shyamalan, this, the germ of this idea was that this was a story that he told his kids when he was putting them to bed. Now, two things about that. One, it's your bed. It's your own bedtime story. Uh, that it almost that's almost like saying that I'm gonna make a movie based on in joke. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a little ungenerous of you. Well, I'd say. I don't know. I mean, the fact that he's creating something that maybe his kids get in a way that 99 percent of the public doesn't. But also the fact that. When you ha- when you're putting your kids to bed, the idea is you're giving them a story that they'll fall asleep to. <laughs> now I don't think it's possible to fall asleep to Lady in the Water. You're just so flabbergasted now, by what's going on. Now after, you don't re- you can't really yeah. stop looking at it. Now, I don't know when would be a good time to bring this up, but you know, to watch for this podcast, I decided to watch the movie again. I watched it again too, and I wanted to, I went in with an open mind. I'm like, okay, let me see if I've you know because I've changed over the years. You know, and I and I sometimes I will come to a movie years later, and movies that I found pretentious and up their own butts, I will actually come around and be like, "Oh wow, I actually I I feel like I've grown as a person in ways that make me appreciate it more." Like that happened with uh, Soderbergh's Solaris, mm-hmm. the George Clooney Solaris that came out in two thousand two. When I first saw that, I thought it was a boring piece of garbage. Then I saw it about eight or nine years later just on TV one day and I was like, wow, I really get this now. Like it really is moving to me. Mm. I get this. Like, cause I, I maybe it was cause I hadn't fallen in love or something like that. I, that <laughs> sounds really sappy, but that, it's true. you're right. <laughs> but I thought, all right, with laying the water, let me give this another shot. And after now I read the book, I feel a little bit more that the Shyamalan was really putting himself out there. The book, which I'll get to the book in a moment about, how this works but the book made it seem like this is was the most important picture of his career yes. he was gambling it all on this movie he was almost ready to put half the budget of the movie himself right which it. he certainly could have afforded but it was still a big chunk yeah. of change and i still think it's a piece of crap it's still not <laughs> it's still not a good movie it's the hubris the absolute hubris on mm. screen is just mind-boggling to yeah. watch. Like, how much in love with his work that he is. And I think that if it wasn't... if Sometimes tone is everything. You know, we've talked about this over and over again. The, the tone of a movie will often set something for you. The fact, you know, when I was talking about Showgirls on the previous podcast... You know, that's a pretty terrible script, but the tone of the movie is very, like, it's embracing the trash of it. It's embracing how the sin of Sin City, so to speak. It's right. being very, like, fun. it's even being, it even knows kind of, all right, we are just going to go balls to the wall crazy. Let's have a fun time. It, it's almost pulpy in a way. It, it, it's sensational, but, and yeah. it embraces its own sensationalism yeah. without even winking to the yeah. audience. And, and you know, a lot of Tarantino movies, they, 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 they could go a totally different way if they didn't have the right tone. Right. For example, the tone of laying the... All the characters are talking and talking and talking about it. Yeah. And it's a movie loaded with exposition, but you're still lost on a lot of key things. Yeah. There are still a lot of questions that you're asking yourself as you're watching the movie about how certain things work with how uh, Bryce Dallas Howard is doing this or that. Why does she need showers? Yeah. Why does she have to hang out in the shower all the time? Why does she stop speaking in the middle of the film? Yeah, and then and she starts then, talking again. And then you begin understanding why in the book, when M. Night Shyamalan pitches this to Disney why the people who read that script came back and said this is not ready they they did not get it they no. they did not and that actually becomes one of the key focal points of the book is that for, because of the sixth sense you know the sixth sense put Shyamalan on top of the mountain like as far as film goers go that movie yeah. made 
I guess the book. I don't know if I. I guess I have to look up the statistic, but I'll take the book's word for it that Six Cents Unbreakable six signs six, in the village made two billion worldwide. Right. Six Cents became like a Citizen Kane. Yeah. You know, his his big film that just uh, exploded into the public consciousness. Yeah, but it. Um, and then he had this whole thing where he, you know, he wrote the script. And by the way, that script had five drafts. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I would love to see what drafts came before that. Jesus Christ. Um, but he then has this very fateful dinner with the Disney execs. And they just tell him straight out, we don't get it. Yeah. And yet, it's interesting because they tell him, like, you know, we, we'll let, you could still make the movie. You won't. We won't give you as much money for it, but you can still go ahead, and we'll see you at the premiere. Yeah. But Shyamalan, but but this author. Now I don't know if you thought this was. I don't know if this is a critique of the book that maybe the author repeats things a little bit too much at times. Do you know what I mean? No. Like the comparisons to Michael Jordan, and uh, and Bob Dylan, like how maybe Shyamalan sees himself as like this great figure who wants to live up to these other great figures. At first, the analogies really work. Maybe by near the end of the book, it gets a little bit tiresome. Mm -hmm. But this very fateful dinner, it... um, Actually, let me just read this quote, because I really love this one part of the book, uh, which I I, I kind of dog-eared this when I was reading it. Um, This is him when he's at dinner, and he's he's kind of feeling like... Because he goes on these long things, by the way. He's the head of Disney. Or Dick Cook or Oren Aviv. He wasn't looking at three individuals. They had morphed into one. The embodiment of the company they worked for. And that company, the great Walt Disney Company, founded in 1926 by Walter Elias Disney, no longer valued individualism. It no longer valued fighters. Nina and Cook and Aviv wanted Knight to be a cog. They had talked so much about Team Disney, about turning every employee into some kind of bland cheerleader, all with the same nose and hair and body type, that they had left no room on the roster for their star. They didn't want stars anymore, and as Knight looked at them, he realized this wasn't a dinner meeting. It was an intervention, as if they were meeting with an alcoholic who needed to get get him into a treatment program. Their purpose was to talk some sense into him. Get on the team, buddy. We can all make lots of money. (laughs) Hmm. So... He had a very particular view of those Disney people, yeah. which colors the rest of the movie. I wonder how, that, the, if he had made the movie at Disney, how the movie might have turned out if he hadn't just been let loose to do whatever he wanted. He does seem to to leave Disney very quickly after that meeting. Yeah, and it's, it's so interesting how there's like no time for reflection. It's just like, all right, they betrayed me. They're they're like a lover. They they left me, and Disney's like. What the hell, man? We we want to work with you. It's like interesting to see both sides of it because then later in the book, the author interviews the Disney CEO, and she's like, "I don't know what happened either. I like yeah. I like Knight. Um, yeah, it's certainly not as melodramatic as what M Night Shyamalan of, of what it he, of what the book claims Shyamalan saw in it. No. I, it the, what really happened was nowhere near as dramatic. But but he was a little bit of I think he was but a he was he, but it. he was but he's he was clearly quite disappointed by the reception of the script. I had especially after you know the the praise he'd gotten for Sixth Sense and Unbreakable yeah. and well, the Village. Well, he, he he's like he he's probably the modern day example of a, a type of director that actually was around a lot in the seventies, because uh, not all of them, but there were a number of directors who made one or two films and got successful really quickly and then had a bunch of bombs and then end up kind of scrambling Michael for Trino. the rest of their career. <laughs> well, a little bit of that. Maybe we'll get to him in a future episode. Someday. someday. Um, very soon. Um, or also, I also thought of Peter Bogdanovich. He was somebody else who suffered quite a, a number of blows in the seventies after getting some big success. I, I almost wonder the- if like, if Shaman hadn't, you know, if the Sixth Sense hadn't been quite that much of like a huge, huge hit, yeah, maybe he could have ascended a little bit more gradually, instead of having like 
like, do you think maybe from reading the book he put too much pressure on himself? He certainly did. Although I can't really blame him for that because it is kind of endearing. I I feel I yeah. ultimately it, it works against him because Shyamalan he's throughout the production as the book to, uh, talks about it he's constantly second guessing himself and yeah. that memory of the meeting with the Disney executives comes back to haunt they him. They become like all these the figures that look that over float him. around his head and saying we told you oh. so. Oh that brings me <laughs> to uh, the, the the title of the book by the way in case any of you are wondering why is it called the man who heard voices is because Shyamalan tells the author early on, well, the voices told me this. And the author's like, the voices? And I was like, the voices. Which sounds like a, what a crazy person would say. Shyamalan is not crazy. Not quite. I mean, the way that he puts it. And now, the longer the book it, goes on, just... it makes a little bit more sense. Just like how any of us have thoughts in our head. Or we are, or we have that guy in the back of our brain who keeps saying this is a bad idea. Do you think that he had that though? <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, and I know how that feels. I mean, I, no, no. I, as a creative person, and I know this too. You will, you know, a lot of art is about taking risks. Yeah. And the the tricky thing about it though is that your judgment will let you down eventually. Yeah, I mean, I've worked on some things that started out with with nothing gigantic, but some things that were important to me, and they start out with great promise, and then by the end you're just you're kind of hoping that it'll just be over yeah. and you can get it over with, and you're like, come on, this thing is it's gotta go, we gotta keep finishing it up, and this was what happened to Shyamalan. He he began this as a very personal thing. It was a story for his children. Yeah. And he said, let's try to develop this into a film. He went through five drafts, a ton of work, and then he pitched it to the very people who had supported him throughout his career uh, and who, who and, uh, had helped him birth big successes. Yes. And this was the first time that he came up against major resistance for a project. Yeah, well, not, well, not even major resistance, just people who told him... Significant resistance. Well, then. yeah, we don't get this. Like, you know, before he's had people maybe like, well, I have this issue, that issue with the script, but let's go with it. I, I'm all for it. Yeah. With this one, they were telling him, well, you have all this stuff here, and, you know, I think that there's... I think it's a lot of gray area, which is why I like in the book, this yeah. idea that you have this guy who I can relate to having a passion to want to tell a certain story that might be a little risky and might be different. On the other hand, we if, if you do, do you have somebody who's going to tell you no? Yeah. And the interesting thing and in the book is, and that's I don't all know the more if... Did, did he have anybody telling him no? I'm not sure if he did. I feel like... There is no single person who, in this book, and by extension M. Night Shyamalan's life, who looks at his work and says, this does not work, and this is why. He doesn't have one of those people. Now, you're lucky if you can find one of those people. But the interesting thing, though, is that, according to the, at least according to the author in the book, it seemed like he did have people around him who would give him strong feedback so did nobody tell him i i don't get this i i don't understand all the rules that you're setting up in this story well the fact that there the... are all of these elements that you're telling the audience about right that be it gets bogged down like if this was maybe like I don't know if he had written like a Lord of the Rings type of book, maybe he could have found a way yeah. to make it work, right, but, but he fitted into like an hour and 45 minute movie. I, but clearly someone did the people at Disney and <laughs> yeah. that caused a lot of problems for him. Yeah. Not necessarily because he, he's an egomaniac or yeah. not necessarily because he can't take criticism, but because it was this project that was very close to him. And eventually when you work on something that's very close to you, something that you're very passionate about. You lose about. perspective. You lose perspective and you go very deeply into it. So that the work that you put into it, you have to then justify. Yeah. And yeah. it's... Now let's talk about the movie for a second. Right. Now what did you think of it, seeing it again? Uh, thinking about it again, I really honed in on two major problems that make this film 
not work. One okay. of them is something you just talked about. The rules of the world. Yeah. Now, we have the real world, which is Philadelphia. It's the, the Cove apartment complex yeah. where Paul Giamatti lives. Okay, that's the regular world. And then in comes Story and her world. The world of Narfs and Scrunts and Tartutics and giant eagles. <laughs> now... <laughs> Sorry, just... Just hearing about giant eagles makes me laugh. Right. <laughs> and the, Again, like The Hobbit. And again, this you mentioned this, the rules are not clear. No. Every time in this film we think the rules are clear. Such as what narfs can do, and when they're supposed to go home, and how things are... And which characters are supposed to be who? How scrunts work. How scrunts work, or any of the other creatures. Anytime we think we know how that's supposed to work, we go... It doesn't work the way we expect it to, and then we find out the loophole that nobody even knew about beforehand. Also the fact that, like, people just... Well, not all people, but, like, the the Korean girl and her mother, or aunt, grandmother, or whoever it was. Yeah. They just know all of this lore. Right. And then, uh, now that in itself is not terrible, but you need, in a world where you have very fantastical things, yeah. you have to lay the groundwork for those things yeah. very early in the film. And very late in the film, we keep having people going back and filling in things that, and saying, no, that's wrong, we have to go back because this is the other thing, and it doesn't really work that way. It's constantly backtracking. It feels like it ends up making up the rules as it goes along. Yes. And yet it's so much also one of the things which, I'm not going to say the movie's entirely unvisual, but there's a lot of people sitting around talking in, hu in hushed whispers, in very serious voices. <laughs> what are you going to tell me, Story? What do you want? I, th voices like that. About things that sound silly. And that's always yeah. a recipe. That's always that's very a... difficult when... I understand the impulse that you want to try to approach something a little bit more seriously than... E even if it's something meant for kids. But the problem is, though you cross that line into making something self-serious. Yes. Um, which is what happens a lot here. Um, and, yeah, it, it just... It, and it's not yeah. that the film is dark. It's not that the film is too pessimistic or too gloomy for its own good. It's just that... I almost don't know what the outlook of the movie it, is. It, it just has so much gravity. Yeah. It, it, it's so... It's so weighed down by the performances and by the writing that you feel like this is a matter of life and death when we're supposed to be talking about what M. Night Shyamalan describes as a fairy tale or a bedtime story. Yeah, I mean, when you look at certain fairy tales, I don't this know, is, like, this stuff is... like the Brothers Grimm, you don't have, like, a hundred rules to get through. Yeah, and even in those... Even in those stories, even though people can die bloody deaths, it's pretty lighthearted. Yes. And also, you don't have characters that, I'm sorry, feel like the director is making targets out of people. Like How do you mean? Like Bob Balaban's film critic, hmm. who feels like he's there... Like they're also, you know, it's interesting. The book pointed this out to me, and I was watching the movie through. I was, there are a lot of writers in this film. Yes, that's true. You know, there are a lot of writers. You know, like uh, I think Cleveland Heap maybe tried to be a writer at one point, and then Jeffrey Wright sort of does the crosswords. And, and there's, there's the woman who wrote a novel years who, ago. Who's, yeah. And and then of course Shyamalan himself as the author who will change the world. All right, now's the time to talk about that. Yeah, because, because Shyamalan acts in the movie, too. Now, this is the film where he acts the most. He, yeah, because in, in other films, he's given himself cameos. Like, in, uh, it's, he, th you know, again, he, there was a very, very short period of time where he was called the new Hitchcock, and that was part of the reason. Because yeah. he would Except, appear, actually, you know what, he had a de somewhat decent cameo in Signs. Right, in that, he was, in that film, he was out of the way enough that you didn't feel like he was taking up some scenery, but then he was present enough to the, the to the point that you noticed him and that, you know, he felt like 
he needed to be there. In Whereas in this movie, he gave himself enough of a role where he had to be there to rehearse. Yeah. Now, this is very tricky to talk about. In what way? Because, okay, the part M. Night Shyamalan plays in Lady in the Water (laughs) is that he is a man who lives in the apartment complex with his sister, and he writes a book, and according to story, his book will eventually change the world it will do he is it will make a president elected or something like that too something like that and it's like some someday like some kid is going to read his book and that's going to help him form into a really cool awesome person who's going to change the world that's part of the thing is that story has these knows that these things are going to happen she i guess she has some kind of power of clairvoyance even though like she she clearly doesn't have it all the way because if she did then she could see like other things that should yeah. be happening. And the whole reason she is there in on in the world, going to that apartment complex, is so that Shyamalan's character can see her and be inspired. Yes. So he's put a lot of importance on this character, who which he is playing. And he's playing a writer who's going to change the world. And he's also very serious in the role, too. Yeah. So it really 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 seem self-indulgent and it's hard to really i don't want to because i kind of know this is i don't know exactly how to say this but it because he has his head up his ass you can say it (laughs) but i don't want to say that because i don't feel like that's that's what it really really seems like but then reading the book i had this feeling that M. Night Shyamalan, as a person, doesn't seem like a person who has his head up his ass. Not completely. I mean, there are there are a number, like, there are times where he does. But then there are also other times where he does seem like more, more of an interesting guy and even someone who can engage with people in a way that actually really surprises them. Like, one of my favorite moments in the book is when um, he has, like, this rough cut screening. Oh, yeah. And a friend brings a friend who writes a really early review of the movie on Ain't It Cool News. And and Shyamalan's like, all right, I want to meet with this guy, but I'm just going to meet with him at, like, some coffee shop in New York City. Because, you know, and he sits writing, down writing an early review of a film that's just a rough cut. That's very... You, it's, it's, which, which, uh, of which you were not supposed to write a review in the first place. is a serious it's uh, discourtesy. Like, he was looking for his feedback, but not in that way. Right. And the way that what, his conversation with him... And how he lays it out for him, it it made Shaman seem really just inspiring. Yeah, he, like the way that he was actually he turned this guy doing this bad thing into almost something inspiring to him. Yeah, and yeah, so there are he a does of just like a that. really cool, solid human thing to yeah. do. And and that's why I, I, I feel reluctant to say that Shyamalan is just being pretentious, because he doesn't seem like a pretentious person. But then, this part comes in where he gives himself a role which has such self-importance, and it's all like the circumstantial evidence pointing to the obvious idea that this person is the killer in a murder story. Yeah. And it's just like, how can you not seem pretentious when you give yourself that kind of well, role? That, well, that plus the combination of Bob Balaban. Which, seeing the movie again, I wanted to try to give him a little bit of the yeah. doubt, too. Because I like Bob Balaban. But, and, well, you can't blame Bob Balaban no, for anything that happens no. in, in that script. No, but the, yeah, the character that he's given, it almost seems like the kind of thing that, in a Scream movie might almost be clever Hmm. like the guy who's pointing out the cliches of a movie but a it feels out a little bit out of place in laying the water even though i know the character's name story i know that a number of the characters are writers i know that shaman's playing a character whose book will change the world but by having somebody stop the movie to suddenly point out movie cliches right before he's about to die yeah 
No. To, to clarify, no. Bob Balaban plays a movie critic. Yeah, in the and film. He, he's a very he's a sourpuss. Yeah, he doesn't like to talk to people a lot. He clearly turns up his nose at a lot of the people in in the apartment complex, and he has the sort of know it all attitude about uh, about films and about things. And the advice that he get he gives to Cleveland Heap, Paul Giamatti's yeah. character, ends up being wrong. Yeah. Which is another dig at film critics. Yeah, so he's clearly... I mean, I don't know whether he was just trying what he thought was a playful dig at just critics in general. It's kind or, of like... Or if he was... Or if he took really... He, or he, he took offense to anybody who criticized his past work. Hmm. It's and, kind and, of like in Roland Emmerich... Uh, in Godzilla... <laughs> Uh, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla, where he makes the mayor of New York Mayor Ebert with his assistant Gene. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, it, that's it's pretty that, bad too. It's that little tasteless dig at critics by just giving by just making roles that mock them in in films. And, yeah, <laughs> I, there is a way to do that though, like in Gremlins or like that too. crappy thing that. Brian Singer did in X in X Men Three, where he's like, "Oh, the third movie, uh, the third oh. movie." <laughs> oh God! Where they literally stop the movie and turn to the camera. We know the third one's only the worst one, Brett Ratner. Yeah, that was that was bad too. But I think that in this movie, it just—I I don't know—it it, it really ground the movie to a halt. Like screech. Yeah. And he, he makes this sort of fourth wall breaking uh, pronouncement before he's yeah. killed. That in a film where mm-hmm. there's in a film this which isn't very violent, his character yeah. is not likely to die, and then he dies, and yeah. then you're like, "What the hell just happened?" Yeah. Now, when I talk about tone, uh, it's not just about like how characters talk. It's also this was something I noticed a little bit more too, because again, I'm movie work. I've become a little bit more well versed in watching movies not to you know i'm not trying to say one thing or another i just happen to have more on set technical things i know things from teaching film that and a couple of the crew people be like do you want to get coverage for this and coverage basically means that you get your main shots so that you can have things to cut to you have the angles on two actors in a scene if you have three actors you maybe have a wide shot so you can see all of the all action of that's the going frame. around. It's also called a master shot. Um, whereas, Lay in the Water, the shots last on and on. Yeah. And he, and basically on set, he would respond to people like, no, I told you, we're not doing coverage. Yeah. And I, for those of you who, who, who may not, uh, who, who are tra- kind of wondering what Jack's talking about, watch a movie and then just watch a film, uh, watch a scene with dialogue and count how many times there are cuts in that scene. Watch Pulp Whether, Fiction. You know, if you're looking at, if there are like two people talking in a scene, think about how many times you see just one person on screen, then the other person on screen, then both. Yes. When you get coverage, you get all those different angles so that you can edit it together into something that looks more interesting. Yeah. Now, and in Lady in the Water, I remember reading this too, Shyamalan does not get coverage. He just takes one shot of the two characters. Yeah. And instead of having some cuts and edits in there where you change angles, it's all just the same angle looking at the same yeah. people. See, that and that's part of the that's a big problem too, is that um now I'm not saying necessarily if the movie had been shot conventionally, it might have been a lot significantly better. But no, it the was, way that, it wouldn't have saved the script. No, but the way that it was shot added to the experience. That's why when I saw it and I, it immediately shot up to among the worst films I had ever seen, it was a deadly combination of both terrible style with terrible subject matter kind of combined together. The fact that you have actors who are talking on screen and he doesn't cut away, so you're forced at times to watch some awkward... N- Actors who almost seem a little awkward, not you know, being on screen for a long period of time when normally you would have something else to cut to, you'd have another actor to cut to. So, and it, it, it in the book, it almost seemed like he thought that all right, I'm making a film that's going to be released on thousands of screens. It's a hundred forty million dollar movie, but I'm making a piece of art. I'm making something that's artistic. I don't want it to look like every other movie. That's why I have good old Christopher Doyle, which we should get into him in a second. But um, you know, but it's that adds to it. That you know, there 
it's really it is tricky and it is i have to be careful when i say a style is overbearing or overwrought which you know for those of you who want to look up a dictionary those are synonyms for pretentious but <laughs> by having shots that are calling attention to themselves by having a style which is calling attention to itself you're also calling attention to your own self-importance this is also an issue i've had with a number of later period Jean-Luc Godard films uh which you know that's that's something for another major time. film people but the point is there even if you the type of red letter media line you don't notice it but your brain did i think you could even notice that the way that the film is put together is not like other movies thank you jack <laughs> i'm sorry i didn't mean to insult you like that um christopher doyle so yeah. he's the cinematographer of the movie. He is probably the one of the more entertaining parts of the book. Yeah. Just because he... So for those of you who don't know, there's this Chinese filmmaker named Wong Kar Wai. Um, Wong Kar Wai not? What? Skip it. <laughs> Wong Kar Wai. <laughs> and he made a, he made a film <laughs> called like a In the Mood for Love. Show. Yeah, In the Mood for Love. He also did Chungking Express, uh, Happy Together, a number of movies. Uh, for Wong Kar Wai, very, very stylish. Uh, very. Um, Chris Doyle worked on those films. Yeah, he's uh, he actually is he, he's an Australian who ha- has a thing for Chinese people or Asian people. Chinese say. women. Chinese women. <laughs> he he comes on. He's kind of like the loose cannon of the film crew. Like there are a number of things that N Night Shyamalan's a little bit worried about. Doyle, I want your badge on my desk. You're yeah. done. <laughs> And Christopher Doyle is maybe top of the list because he's extremely unpredictable. Yeah. He'll often get drunk, and he's even drunk when he's shooting scenes. Yeah. Having that knowledge also when I was watching the movie again, I was like, huh, maybe there was somebody drunk behind the screen when they shot this. We don't often like to say on the Wages of Cinema that, what, did somebody, did whoever shot, shot this was drunk? But sometimes, yeah, yeah, that's the case. Hey, this case, yeah. I mean, he... Like, there are times where he could be really competent, and Shyamalan keeps saying, I don't want the American Chris Doyle. I want the Asian Chris Doyle. I want the guy who's going to give me all the great shots. And he gets that Christopher Doyle. He also gets somebody who he also is, gets... is kind of nuts. Yeah. Well, but in a, there are so many great stories. You know what my favorite story is with him? With the, the bikini straps? Well, that was a good story too. Yes. Oh yeah, where he fights with the costume designer. Yeah, that that was pretty good. He's trying to get like them a certain way, and the, yeah, the costume designers are like, "No, this is a PG movie. We're having it that way." Yeah. No, there's a moment where he drops trow and is showing off his bottom area, like his ass, and also his schlong to people. And somebody on the crew comments, "Wow, he has a tiny butt." And someone else and someone else comments that's not that's not all that's tiny on him. <laughs> I had a good laugh at that. Nice. I did. I just thought that was great. Um cuz he, he set up for himself. I mean, he he was quite Clearly a character. It did not bother him. No. Although it bothered a lot of other people on set. There are a lot of interesting anecdotes in this book. It, it goes quite a bit into the story of this actress Cindy Chung yeah. who plays I don't remember the character's name now. Was it like Su Hung? Some uh, I don't remember. She plays but the the, the Asian woman whose mother knows all about narfs for some reason. Yeah, and she's supposed to play like this kind of nightclub going Britney Spears ish type. And the interesting thing was is that Cindy Chung is is Asian American and she's also very tall. Yes. And the fact is is that there is very little call in film for tall Asian women. As M. Night Shyamalan was writing the script, he said, I need an Asian woman who's tall. Yes. He he just had that vision, and he somehow got to meet with this woman, and just somehow his audi- her audition clicked, and she got the part. And that, and that part is in Lady in the Water. Yes. Um, <sighs> yeah. It's, Let uh, me talk a little bit about... That character's mother, the the old the older Asian lady. Oh, you mean the who knows all about? Nars. Oh, you mean the complete stereotype? Yeah. 
here's, the, here's the other major fault of Lady in the Water that and everything that M. Night Shyamalan is trying to lay down. And she says it's because of an old legend that she heard as a kid that was passed down from her family and stuff. And she knows the story and she can tell it. We never hear what that story is. Mm. Every time she talks about it, she just says facts. It's like, if, if, if the story of Little Red Riding Hood was told in the same way, you wouldn't hear the story of like, oh, Red Riding Hood was taking uh, sweets to her to her grandma, and then she met a wolf who found out and went to the house and ate her. It would be more like. Little Red Riding Hood was wearing a red cloak that was given to her by the king, who mandated that all children <laughs> must wear red cloaks for safety because it drove away monsters, and monsters hate the color red. And she was bringing special bread that was supposed to get, keep her grandmother alive because she had a sickness. And as if if you went into all these minutia about the world of Little Red Riding Hood, but never told the story yeah, of it, or even like another or another example, uh, Star Wars, which itself in a way is a little bit of a fairy tale. Um, imagine if they explained the minutiae of that. Yeah. Like, and what if they explained, never like... well, you know, CC-3PO is able to walk around because of all of the special, uh, golden robot things that hold his arms together. And, and, he speaks, and he speaks lots of different languages. The reason is because he's programmed by this company, which does all the languages. And they've got their start <laughs> doing this. And... There's never she never talks about this story that she heard in terms of like characters who did this yes. or char- or or people who went places and or villains they had to fight. It's all just detail and statistics and 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 the incidental facts of a story. Yeah. She never tells a story which is engrossing, which is what this story ends up being. Yeah, it's sloppy story. It's it's very sloppy. Yeah, like I, when when you, when you te- when you claim that this movie is supposed to be like a new fairy tale or a bedtime story, it has to act like it. Yeah. Instead of just making up, uh, instead of just seeming like you're making up the rules as you go along, mm-hmm. you have to lay the groundwork. You have to have the twists come in the middle where you don't understand what's going on, and you have to set up those twists, not say, yeah. oh, I got it wrong the first time. I, I That's yeah. why the, the movie really fails. I don't even think it's a matter of shooting. I don't think it's a matter of the acting, although the tone is a real problem. I mean, if you're going to make a, a fairy tale, you have to have some levity. But it's yeah. it's this idea that the, the script is not there. To no. support this fairy tale. And if M. Night Shyamalan is going into this project thinking this is a fairy tale, he's going way off the mark. I think that he, when you talk about those voices... I don't think he man- truly understands what a fairy no, tale is. I don't think he understood his own project. I feel like there were moments in the book, too, that point to how he he maybe even knew it. Hmm. He maybe knew that he didn't have it, but he still Toward, had to keep going towards for the it end, anyway. As the as the film is being made, he can't stop no. because he's got a multi million dollar project on his hands, which ultimately, which towards it, the end, he just has to steamroll yeah. through because which, there is no alternative. Which, which by the way, the that's movie, why I, it's that's why it's better to be a novelist than a film director. No, yeah. At least well, you can burn your work at the end. Yeah, or at least your work, <laughs> if. You know, you can be like Stephen King and write seven Dark Tower books or something, and, you know... People will still remember your good stuff. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. But, but no, but the only money he really wasted was, you know, the paper that he bought, and maybe his editor's time. But Well, I mean, his time spending the writing it, I mean... Yeah, but the point is, he didn't spend, like, a hundred crew members' time. Oh, yeah. And... Um, and also, by the way, like this movie didn't need to cost that much. No, I know it sounds. Not. I know it's a small point, but the book goes into detail about this apartment complex was built from the ground up for the movie. I it thought they exist. renovated it, didn't it? No, it seemed they like, built the no, whole thing. They, it seemed like they built it almost from scratch. Maybe there was some small development. I know there. they had to rebuild the pool. It's why would that cost seventy million dollars to make? There's not $70 million on the screen of this movie. The, by the way, the visual effects also kind of suck. Like, nah. the, the, the the creatures, you know, it, 
at least give us some decent creatures to look at. Like, the scrunts look like crap. Those little spider monkeys or whatever it is they're called. Tartutics. The Tartutics. And here's, what, here's, here's what's great. When Paul Giamatti, <laughs> in Cleveland Heap, first hears like the story, like, oh, there are these things called Tartutics, and they attack scrunts. And he's talking on the cell phone to the lady. He, he's got this look on his face like, great, this again. <laughs> All right, here, here's another question. What, now, this is something else that Corey and I thought about when we were watching this movie again. Why is everybody in the apartment coming together for this? That's not how apartments work. I know that you could say, well, that's the very tough part of it. Not everybody in the apartment complex is there at the same t- moment, where you can immediately go to every person that's there at the exact same time. Well, we're talking about movies. People are available when it's convenient for the plot. Yeah, I mean, but, but, but also that they that, would all come together to help out this girl who, why do they care about her? Eh. It's it's a it's a contrivance. You're absolutely right, but to me, it's the least problematic thing about this film. Maybe well, just like so. just like the creatures, because the creatures are in the film so little yeah. that you know you can't really. It, it's not worth caring that they well, don't that's look no, so great. Well, that's it's, another issue: is that maybe as a filmmaker, part of your job, try to show a little bit more. Don't tell so much. Um, well, that's not really that hasn't really been M Night Shyamalan style anyway. He's been so, able to show some really effective things. Yeah, but movies. not. But I mean, they haven't made to. up a bulk of the film. I mean, think about the films that they could come before it. Uh, Sixth Sense, you barely there is some see genuinely creepy images. Yes, in that but movie. those those moments are very few, and when they do come, they're intense, but they're not plentiful. Yeah. All right, think about Signs. You don't see anything in Signs until the last act of the film. I mean, everything you see before that is like, it's, not very it's like a dead dog or, or cornfields that have been moved down or that yeah. one bit of video footage mm-hmm. of the alien. I, in unbreakable, what is there to see there? Are, there's absolutely nothing. There's no monster there. Uh, what else is there? The village. The only creepy thing you really see are those monsters that come from the woods. But I guess the point though is though that he doesn't really, but then he doesn't have those kind of things to show in the movie then. Like what is, he has like Bryce Dallas Howard's face, just like crying all the time, <laughs> and things like that. I remember in the book, someone ha- someone said, <laughs> yeah. "Can can you lighten up on the crying? Because if if yeah. she cries this much, every scene we're going to expect start to expect her to cry." Yes. <laughs> um, Paul Giamatti, I like quite a bit in the book. Yeah, He's you learned somebody... a great deal about Paul Giamatti and how how He's... friendly and active he was on that set. Yeah, he was just a somebody real team who, player, a, a real, real team player, nice guy. Yeah, somebody who had absolutely no ego, like yeah. z- negative ego. He, you know, self-deprecating like, in a lot of times, in a lot of uh, instances. The quip about uh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Well, we tried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which seemed a little bit foreboding. Yeah. Um, I mean, because you could say they maybe tried and laid in the water, but well, I mean, everyone. Pretty much everyone in this book comes off positively. To a certain extent, some even though, people um, come off negatively. Even here. though Shyamalan, well, Chris Doyle comes off a little. He comes uh, off as he a comes, fool. He comes off pretty negatively. Uh, Shyamalan is kind of a mixed bag. Even though he's the focus, yeah. you find really great th- things to admire about him, but you also find very troubling things about how about his own uh, doubts and processes. I mean, yeah. not troubling as in this man's dangerous. Yeah. I mean, troubling as in maybe he doesn't quite yeah. understand his work. But for the most part, like the entire supporting cast of that film really came together and really wanted to do a good job. No, they weren't there. Like, you know, the, the, except for maybe yeah. Asylum movies, nobody sets out to make a bad movie. No. And that may be the key to why Lady in the Water is such an abysmal failure. Because, because they tried so hard. Yeah, and because in order to make a truly great bad movie, you have to believe that you are making something not just good, but awesome. He thought, again, he was making the most important film he would ever make in his life. The most important film he would make was actually After Earth. <laughs> That was the most important movie Walt Smith would make. Right. Um, and it's interesting, too, that I a couple of little, f- not flaws, but a couple of things I wish were in the book. The book stops right when he... Right he does, before the premiere. 
Yeah, well, no, no. He, well, he does the test screening right. where he gets uh, the best scores of his career, which yeah. is kind of interesting. I always think never trust test scores. No. Test scores are always – like, Goodfellas got terrible test scores when it was uh, put in front of audiences. People were like, what the hell is this? We don't get this. And then, you know, it turned out that way. But test scores are weird because yeah. when when you go into to score a movie, when to look at it, you, you – you have there's this expectation that you, as a person seeing this movie, your job is to find problems and to criticize. I, whereas a person who goes to a movie theater on Friday night to see a movie is looking to have fun. Yeah. So test scores are tricky. Yeah. It, it's this weird thing. I mean, I, you and I have been to a few test screenings. Yeah. I I don't know how you felt about you know actually being there and you know trying to find things that might be wrong with it but you know it's this i have some immediate reactions to things other things end up occurring to me later mm. which is happens with a lot of movies sometimes you have an immediate reaction and then you'll think of other things later on that didn't occur to you at first the awkward part of going to test screening is when the director is actually there mm. and then i see them like I've I've run into like Sam Mendes at a test screening. You suck! <laughs> Damn it, Spectre could have been better. Um, I actually have nothing against Sam Mendes. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> um, but but the point is that with the book, I wish that it had finished. Like, I wish it had gone the whole distance to show the release of it because the release of Lee in the Water is important because it was the first significant financial and critical disappointment of Shyamalan's career up to that point. Hmm. Uh, I mean, he had made like two films before the sixth sense, which were, you know, uh, they go into a little bit about the second film. Cause that kind of gave him the impetus to make the sixth sense. This, I have to sell this in a big way or not at all. Yeah. But I, I wish that had been in the book though, because it kind of leaves you at this point where maybe you don't know what's going to happen next, but it needed that closure for me maybe i think it might have i think it would have been pretty discordant along uh alongside the themes that the book was building up i mean the whole film is about Shyamalan. you mean the book what did i say you said the film okay let me try that again (laughs) Uh, i got you putting in that sort of downbeat at the end would have gone against what the book was working with because the whole book is all about Shyamalan, his doubts and his process in trying to work through this very personal project. So maybe it's all now, about the process. That's a pretty fair assessment because I in a book where you're listening where you're where you're reading about a director trying to find his way through the through this project that he has all these doubts about, it's pretty it's pretty brutal to then put at the end Lady in the Water was a failure. Mm. I and mean, we know the end. Because it's ten years later, and we've seen Lady in the Water, and we know that it's a hunk of garbage. And also, well, also financially speaking, that was, but that was part of the book, though, was like how much money was riding on it, how much uh, things like with, involving his career was riding on it. Yeah, and ultimately, the book is not about the success or failure of Lady in the Water. Okay, it's a big struggle. To bring together a group of people who believed in this film, mm. and to find and to make something that was true to his vision, and basically, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, no, I, I got what you mean. But you know, it's it, he, he it's want, about it's his about, it's struggle. About him, it's about him trying to be Michael Jordan throwing that bait basketball. There are a lot of bas- right. there are a lot of basketball metaphors in this book too. True. Well, Shaman's a big basketball fan. So. Yeah, it's apparently so. And, and again, this is a sports writer, so he um I actually kind of liked how when the author saw the the movie, yeah. and he actually had his own criticisms. Yeah. But he kind of mentions, well, you know, I usually don't see a movie a second time like in a theater. You know, I usually see it just the once. And how do you, and how do you criticize a film that you've just spent uh, the better part of a year watching uh, following yeah and watching if people put it together it's like watching how the sausage is made yeah it, you know can you can you ever eat a hot dog again after and the same way after you've seen how it's made yeah 
Well, um, you certainly can't enjoy it the same way. Yeah. Like, if I had to say with the book, it's not, like, my all-time favorite making of a movie book. Like it My all-time favorite is the making of Star Wars so far. Oh, really? <laughs> that, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it was a really good book, too. Um, that's, that's kind of... That's inter- it's interesting you bring that up, because that's actually somebody else making their own fairy tale yeah. and making a risk on that. So and there that... you have it, the end of the episode. Uh, making of Star Wars, a really great book. You should check it out. <laughs> no, but let's wrap up our thoughts about Lady in the Wire. Final thoughts. Um, again, I still think this movie's a failure. It is. You're absolutely it right. It is. I, and I, I, it was also but... tough to watch. It's kind of like, it's kind of a slog to go through this movie again because it's just so important. It feels like it's, you can feel his importance through the screen, like his intention, and that really suffocates the experience of anything, even Paul Giamatti, who I almost felt sorry for watching him, (laughs) because he is such a good actor, Yeah, and I felt almost embarrassed for him having to put, and he was clearly putting a lot of emotion into this character, which... Involved a lot, of, so so the scrunts and the narf. So we have to make sure that she can get into the thing. And oh, and one last point: narfs, narfs, narfs. In the book, it tries to make it seem like he just came up with this word. Nope. Bullshit. <laughs> Animaniacs. You're absolutely Pinky right. Pinky and the brain. Narf. Zor. Yeah. Are you pondering what I'm pondering? I think so, I think Brian. so Jack. Well, but I think... Night Shyamalan going to see another one of my catchphrases. <laughs> and with Watching that... Lady in the Water was easier for me. How so? Well, I read the book and I was eager to... Yeah, it filled in a lot for me. And I thought, I don't, I don't expect this to be great, certainly not. But maybe I'll, knowing everything I do, maybe it'll help me see the film in a different light. I don't know what that's going to be, but, you know, I'm, I was excited to watch it again. Yeah, and and prior to that, I had seen a few other Shyamalan films mm-hmm. to prepare myself. I saw Unbreakable, and I saw The Village, and uh, a lot of interesting things about that. Uh, and I realized, yeah, it's still a bad film. I I figured out why exactly it's a bad film uh, in a way that was satisfying for me. It did, bring and closure. I and I didn't have that same sort of desperate reaction I did the first time I saw it with you. Where you're grasping at straws. Yeah, I was, I was not flabbergasted anymore. I said, oh, I've come to terms with this, and I, and I understand it now. And I saw it, I wrote down my notes, and I filed it away. <laughs> yes. And I think I learned good. something. I learned something about You're like story. a South Park character. I learned something today. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I learned something about films and, and stories. That's not good. not the Narf story. I mean about like stories. construction and how what things make sense and how actors respond to things and how uh... yeah. But most importantly, I learned about the dangers of getting too deeply inside your own head. Yeah, yeah. That you that eventually you've basically just got to either push ahead or you've got to and you've got to listen to the people around you. Yes, which also eventually speak bring it back to. George Lucas became his problem. Ultimately, yes. Yeah, ultimately. Not until not, much not later. Not immediately, but yeah. Um, so if you people have seen Lay in the Water out there, you, you lovely listener people, you people with your headphones or your little earbuds or whatever you're listening to, uh, if you have thoughts about this movie or M. Night Shyamalan, if you want to throw in any twists for us to Ooh, consider, here's what you can do. You can talk about your favorite Shyamalan movie. Sure, why don't you... If you have a movie that you want to defend, if you want to defend Lee in the Water... No, you, you don't even have to defend it if you want. You could talk about your favorite Shyamalan movie that you've seen, one, you know, what you like, the film that you hated the most, the one that sticks out to you and why it's so special. Yeah. Maybe you saw it with somebody who was awesome, like with M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> and then he had you fill out one of his comment cards in his barn. Sure. Um, send it to wagesofcinema at gmail.com not the comment cards I mean the emails yeah our email or also on Facebook send us a message there or comment there Uh, then you're also going to have Twitter tweet us if you have any thoughts say uh, Shaman's great or Shaman's awesome or Shaman sucks Uh, things like that we're also on Tumblr Instagram uh, uh, iTunes all the places that you can get us and uh, yeah and uh, that's our show (laughs) I don't know what else to say.
Jack, I think that you and I are destined to do this forever. I think this is the star of a beautiful friendship. Definitely. With, <laughs> with party we'll, on. We'll, we'll return soon with more uh, case files from Doctor Jack and Doctor Andrew. And more required reading. By the way, I'd recommend uh, the man who heard voices. I think it was a very good book. I do as well. It's a very not fast the greatest read. book about making ofs, but still a pretty good one. Yes, it's it's a felt. It's also a pretty. It's an easy read too. You don't need to be like a super expert on cinema. It's written for the general public to read. Again, it's written by a sports but if you're, writer. But even if you are a film person, you're probably going to find a lot to enjoy. Yeah, if you if you especially if you like any of these people, if you're a fan of Paul Giamatti or even Christopher Doyle, uh, if you're I'm a sure. fan of Shyamalan, yeah, you will find a or lot. Or Bob Balaban. Yeah, and you'll find, and it's interesting too, in a way, as a time capsule, especially because of Shyamalan's career since this. Oh man, man, because I mean, The Happening, The Last Airbender, After Earth, Devil. <laughs> I I always forget about Devil because that's the one you didn't you were, You're lucky. <laughs> Did you see Devil? No, I'm luckier <laughs> than you. I, I my wife saw it, and all she had to say was. Toast jelly side up, or toast jelly side down, and that's all you need to know. So with Beautiful. that, I'm Jack. I'm Andrew. And remember, toast jelly side up is death. Good night. The ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter having a value of eight decimal places of 3.14159265.